The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Ask you guys to open your Bibles to um, Matthew chapter 21. And uh, we're starting a new series called The Final Week. And this is looking at the Passion Week. This is the final week leading up to the cross and the resurrection. And each sermon in this series is going to highlight a particular day of the Passion Week of Christ. And so today's about Palm Sunday, which was one week before the resurrection. And I know for some of you that are very detailed, you might, it might make you crazy that we're, we're preaching this sermon before Palm Sunday takes place. But I want to remind you, in the early ministry, or early on in the ministry of Jesus, if you go back in the Gospels, Jesus might heal someone, or they might confess that he's the Christ, but he would then tell them not to go and tell other people about, about who he was. Now, why did he do that? Well, we're going to see why in today's story, because um, his whole ministry had been building up to this moment, and so if they had revealed who he was too early, then there could have been this big conflict and showdown. And so we're going to see that take place in this story today. So his whole ministry had been building up to this moment. And this is really the first time in today's story where he allows people to refer to him as the Messiah in public. And so if you look in your Bibles in Matthew 21, I want you to go back just briefly in the end of Matthew chapter 20, because the story really begins at the end of Matthew chapter 20, where Jesus and his disciples are leaving Jericho, not the one of the Old Testament, a different location here. And there are are these two blind men that are sitting by the roadside as his disciples and him walk out of this place called Jericho. And these two blind men begin crying out to Jesus saying, Lord, have mercy on us. And they call him the son of David. That's a messianic title for him. And the, the crowd with Jesus rebukes these blind men saying, be quiet, but they only get louder. And so finally, Jesus asked these blind men, what can I do for you? And they say, well, heal our blindness. And so Jesus heals them and they start following him with this crowd of people. And here's why this is so important. Because there's, there are these two blind men, but they can still see who Jesus is. And so that's the backdrop for the story as we get into Matthew chapter 21. Look at Matthew 21. Verses 1 through 5. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Beth, Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them. And he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. So where is all this taking place? Well, this is a map of where this is happening. This is a a map of Bethpage and Bethany and the Temple Mount. And Jesus and the disciples and this crowd is progressing from the city of Bethany through Bethany and then on to Bethpage. And so What's happening here in this part of the story is happening there in Bethpage. So this, this crowd is following Jesus, and this town, Bethpage, is really important because this is the town where Mary, Martha, and Lazarus are from. If you remember, Lazarus was raised from the dead by Jesus, and so Jesus is popular with the people there in Bethpage. 
The time of year is Passover, and so Jerusalem's population would swell sometimes 20-fold during this time of the year. And so Jerusalem is around 80,000 people, and so imagine Temple, Texas, growing 15 to 20 times in a couple of weeks. And some of you are thinking, I live out on 2305, and so I know just what that's like, right? And so it's just grown exponentially over the course of a couple of weeks. And so until now, Jesus had not gone into Jerusalem because he knew it would cause a great stir. But in Jerusalem, people don't know him, but back in Bethpage, they did know who he was because of the raising of Lazarus. So when he sends the disciples to go into Bethpage and get a colt, all they've got to say is the Lord needs him and they're going to know who that is and they will gladly oblige and give him just what he needs. So Matthew's gospel, it's interesting, Matthew's gospel mentions two animals and the question is why? Well, a young colt would have a mother that would need to walk with it to keep it calm in this situation. And so Jesus wants an animal that's never been ridden before. Now everyone knows you can't just ride an animal that's never been ridden before. When I was young, I forget what age I was, maybe nine or 10, at our church, there was a guy at our church that worked for the FBI, and he had a stressful job, and so he ended up having a heart attack. He did survive, but the doctor said, you've got to get rid of some stress in your life, and the guy had a bunch of horses. So he asked my dad, he said, hey, you've got three young boys. Would you like to have a free horse? And so my dad, we had some land, so my dad said that he would love that. So we, we got this beautiful horse, this beautiful brown horse with a, a, a white blaze down her face. And she was a, just an amazing uh, pet for us to have. And then we got another horse after that, another female. And then we got a third horse. We got a black Arabian stallion. And his name was High Voltage, if that gives you an idea of his personality. And you really couldn't ride him. He was really only good for one thing. I'll let you guys figure out what that is. But one time in the field... My cousin, my brother, and I were in the field with him, and I think my cousin dared me to just jump up on his back with no saddle and no bridle, and so I did. He, I get up on his back, and he just takes off, and we're going across the field, and I'm hanging on to his mane like, how am I going to slow this horse down? And in the middle of the field, he just stops cold, and I fly over the handlebars, and then he runs over top of me, and I somehow escape unscathed. But I never did that again. Because everyone knows, of course, except for me, obviously, that you can't ride an animal that's never been trained, unless, of course, unless of course you're Jesus. And so why does Jesus pick an animal that's never been trained or ridden before? Well, this is really a profound detail in the story because it's showing that he is he is the king over all creation. This is the one who can calm the sea and give sight to the blind and turn water into wine and feed 5,000 with using a small boy's lunch. This is the one that can cast out demons and raise up dead people. This is all showing that he is king over all creation. Another reason why he rides in on a colt, verse 4 and 5 in this passage, says that this took place to fulfill prophecy. This is almost an exact quote from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, written 500 years before Christ. But we can go back even further than that. And I love when our series 
tie together. Chase discussed this last week. This is Jacob speaking over his son Judah, the prophecy over his son Judah in Genesis 49, where it says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. Other writers in the scriptures would point to this passage and, and show its fulfillment in the coming Messiah that the Messiah would ultimately come through Judah's line. And this line here in Genesis where it says, and to him shall be the obedience of all the peoples is really, really important later on in our story this morning because it's really the word nations and it's plural. And so it's meant to show that God's kingdom is going to be for the Jews and for the Gentiles. So we can go all the way back to Genesis and see language that's pointing to this moment here in the book of Matthew. Look at Matthew 21, verse 6. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Now, when it says Jesus sat on them, it's referring to the cloaks. He didn't straddle two animals at once. I mean, I'm sure he could. He is Jesus. He could do the splits if he wanted to. But most of us know about the branches being laid down, but they laid down even their cloaks. So we call it Palm Sunday. We don't call it Cloak Sunday. It doesn't have a ring to it. But why do they lay down their cloaks? Well, this would be like modern-day parallel. might be something like to remember the moment. Many of us, many of you there at home, you have, have an autographed um, sports memorabilia. You've got things to remember moments by. And this might be what's happening here. So kind of like an autograph today, somebody might lay down a coat. Jesus is kind of famous at this point. And it might be something like, you know, this is the coat that was stepped on by the donkey that was carrying Jesus. And so this might be happening here in the story. Look down at verse 9. And the crowds went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when, he, and when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. So this crowd has really begun to swell. And most of the people here are not from Jerusalem. But the people from Jerusalem didn't really know who he was. And so it says the city was stirred up. That word means shaken like an earthquake. The whole city is stirred up and shaken up by Jesus coming into the town of Jerusalem. Now remember, at the beginning of our story, there were these two blind men that were calling out, Son of David, Son of David, heal us. And the crowd rebukes them and says, be quiet. But then Jesus heals the two blind men and then they start following Jesus. Now I want you to see what's happening here. Now this whole crowd is chanting the same thing those two blind guys were, were chanting earlier in the story. So God uses these two, these two blind men to correctly identify who Jesus is. And now the crowd is acknowledging it as well. 
there are some genuine believers in this crowd, but also there are many who are just caught up in the moment. And so what's really going on here? I know this is a familiar story as we get into Easter season. This is a story we've all, many of us have read before and heard before, but there is something you may not know about this story. Someone else also rode into Jerusalem around that time. Across town on the west side of the city, there was another processional that was taking place. You may have heard of a man named Pilate. He was the governor in that area. And Pilate would ride into town on a horse at the beginning of Passover, also with a big processional following him as well. And as governor, he is a protector of the peace. And he's followed by soldiers on horse and foot. And they are decked out in full regalia. And they're marching through the city. And so the question is, why are they there? Well, this is Passover week. And so Jewish nationalism would be at an all-time high. Remember, Passover is this celebration of Israel being set free from Egypt, a foreign oppressor. And so their nationalism is at an all-time high. So it would be kind of like our 4th of July here in the U.S. So Pilate shows up with his men as a show of force during this week. And it's a way of him saying, don't get too carried away. Reminding them that Rome is in charge and we're going to put you in your place. And so one way they kept them in check is the picture you see on the screen is this, what's called the Antonia Fortress. This is a, a modeling of that. And these towers were Rome's way of, of keeping watch over the Jews. And they could see every corner of the city from these towers. And if you see the one with the, the colonnade next to it, those columns is really the outer court of the temple. So do you see what's happening? On one side of the city, you've got Pilate coming into Jerusalem with a show of force, but across town, you've got Jesus riding in on a donkey. So Pilate comes in exuding strength and bravado and power. And Jesus shows humility, which is a different kind of strength. And so there at home, I don't know what you can see on the screen, but I've got a picture here of a donkey on one side and, the, and, a, and a horse on the other side of the screen. But looking at things from a human perspective, who would you align yourself with? If I'm a betting man, and I'm not because this is church, I'm taking the war horse over the donkey. But donkeys have this quality that you may not know about because donkeys are, they're kind of scrappy. They've got some fight. My in-laws bought a horse many years ago and the horse has passed away now, but they had some land in forest. They, want, they got this horse and they wanted to get two miniature donkeys. And the question is why? Well, word has it that if you have a horse and it's a single horse, to protect from wild animals like coyotes is that you buy two little donkeys to protect the horse. And you might ask, well, that, and when I first heard this, I thought, wait, that doesn't add up. Like how, how can a, how can a little donkey protect a big horse? And what happens is if, if a, if a horse is pursued by a wild animal, they're just going to run. But a donkey, because they're not fast, they actually stay and fight. And they fend off these other kinds of animals. So I want you to see, so donkeys, they exude humility, but they also have some fight. 
I want you to see how each animal is depicting the one riding it. So Pilate exudes strength and power and bravado, just like a war horse. Now, Jesus isn't outwardly impressive, but as you'll see in a moment, he's got some fight. The scriptures say that Jesus wasn't all that impressive on the outside. That doesn't really fit with what you see in the Jesus films where he's got his Pantene hair and his just for men beard. But the the movies don't depict him that accurately because We know in Isaiah 53, 2, it says, For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no former majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. This is talking about Jesus. We also know he's from Nazareth. Well, what they say about Nazareth, there's nothing good that comes out of Nazareth. And so this might be why the religious leaders were all that impressed. So Jesus had this support from the crowds outside of Jerusalem, but not from the religious leaders. And again, when you watch the Jesus movies, Jesus is always riding into Jerusalem on a donkey to this adoring crowd, and he's smiling and waving and throwing candy to all the kids. But then you come to the Gospel of Luke, and we see something a little bit different. There's something extra in the gospel of Luke, and I think it's really important. In Luke 19, 41 to 42, it says, and when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. So Luke is the only one who includes this emotional outcry from Jesus. And when Jesus sees the city, he starts to weep. So why is that? Well, many of the Jews would reject him, and Jesus knew that. Just like they did with the prophets for hundreds of years. I'm taken by this line, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, because Jesus knows the only kind of peace Jerusalem wants is peace by defeating the Romans. And Jesus wants to bring this real peace for them. But he knows that many are going to reject it. So go back to the beginning of our story. Remember those two blind men? They're blind, but they can see who Jesus is. The religious leaders can see, but they can't really see. And this is why Jesus weeps. And we see more about that in verse 12 of Matthew 21, likely taking place the next day on Monday. It says, And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. So what's happening here? Well, during Passover, Jews came from all over the place to pay this temple tax and also to make sacrifices at this time of the year. And so if you're poor, you could purchase a pigeon or a dove instead of the regular sacrifice. And so there are many that are traveling great distance. So the religious leaders set up this operation. At first, it was to help people exchange money so they could pay the tax 
or purchase sacrifice. And first it was done out of convenience, but then it became exploitative. They would charge extra to, to exchange money and they would overcharge for pigeons and they would keep the proceeds for themselves. So doing this, they were doing all this in the outer court, the court that you saw that was overlooking, being overlooked by the Antonia Fortress. And this, is, this outer court was meant to be a place of prayer for the nations and the Gentiles. Remember Genesis 49, obedience of all the peoples, the nations. That's where everything is heading. And so these people, these religious leaders are using God's house for their gain, and they're inhibiting the poor, and they're keeping out the Gentiles. So everyone here expects Jesus to go into Jerusalem and wreak havoc but against the Romans. Maybe, maybe his parade will, will run into Pilate's parade and there's going to be this big showdown. But instead of driving out the Romans, he drives out those who are using God for their own gain. Then watch what happens in verse 14. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies? You have prepared praise and leaving them. He went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. So how did our story begin? Well, it began with these two blind men proclaiming who Jesus is. And then how does it end? I want you to see the bookends of this story here. It ends with the blind and the lame and even the children proclaiming who Jesus is. So God uses the blind to reveal and expose the spiritual blindness of the religious leaders. This is the blind revealing who the real blind people are. The people that we would least expect, they know exactly who Jesus is, and the ones that know the law backwards and forwards, they can't really see who Jesus is. So what do we do with this story? First, if you're a Christ follower, I want to speak to you. Palm Sunday speaks right into our culture. There are many people today that claim Christianity just like the crowd in this story. And like the crowd, we are broadly supportive of Jesus. But it's often a cultural Christianity that's easily swayed when things don't go our way. And so the moment that Jesus doesn't measure up to the Jesus of our imaginations, we start looking for alternatives. I heard a great sermon by a pastor named Jason Fritz where he said, because of Pilate's affiliation with Rome, so we all know that the, the Roman emperor, would have, Caesar, would have been considered a son of God or son of the gods. And so anyone representing him would also be affiliated with the son of the gods. And so Pilate, because he's affiliated with Rome, would have been considered like a son 
of the gods. And so on the one end of the city, we have this one who considered by some to be like a son of the gods. But on the other end, we have the real son of God coming into Jerusalem. And he asks us really, makes us really good point. is every single day, you and I make a decision to submit ourselves to one of these two sons of God. If you and I were there in person, which procession would we be drawn to? Because as Christ followers, we are tempted to submit ourselves to man-centered kingdoms all the time, and this temptation is greatest when Jesus isn't the kind of king we thought he would be. So which kind, which processional do you think you would have been drawn to had you and I been there on that day? And then secondly, if you're not yet a follower of Christ, I want to speak to you for a moment. A question on our recent TBC survey that we do every year, we ask this question, we ask to identify yourself if you're a follower of Christ or not. And each year, about 80 to 100 people that attend here will say they're not yet a follower of Christ. And I first want to say that I, we love that you're attending here. We love that if you're watching online, we love that you're watching online today. We want to minister to you and be able to help point you to Christ. But I want to highlight one quality that we see in Jesus here in this story, a quality that I think that even you would be drawn to, and it's the quality of humility. And I think we're all drawn to this quality of humility. And I think we see it here in the story. And it's highlighted here in the words of Paul in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, where it says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I'll ask the guys at the back for a minute. Don't go to my next slide just yet until I hit, up, hit the button up here. But people have labored over these words in Philippians chapter 2. This idea that Christ emptied himself and took the form of a servant. You could preach sermon after sermon on this verse alone, these verses alone. But what does it mean that Christ emptied himself but then took the form of a servant? Does that mean that he compromised his deity? You see, Jesus didn't replace his deity with humanity, but in humility, he takes the form of a servant. And the best way I know to teach this idea is by using this as a metaphor. We're going to learn some heavy theology today. So the the show concept of Undercover Boss is that there's this CEO of a company who decides to go undercover and go spend time, maybe go to a place in, in part of their company where no one really knows who they are. And they go and spend time and they actually go and apply and get a low level ranking job somewhere in their company or business. And so this is not a CEO that everyone's going to recognize like Jeff Bezos or someone like that. This is someone that no one's going to know what he looks like. He or she looks like And so they go and spend time in the lower levels of their company and pretend to be just a regular worker. And so they're doing regular work that regular people do. 
And the show has, is, a, is a powerful concept because what happens is eventually the person that they're working alongside realizes that this is the CEO. This is a, a big deal. And all the while, they didn't know that that was the situation. And I think it's a great idea of how Jesus steps into our world because the person in, in this show, they don't, they don't stop being the CEO when they take their new role, but he or she adds something new to their already existing role. And so Jesus doesn't stop being God when he takes on flesh. You could say he adds humanity to his deity. But why is a show like this so attractive? Well, here's why it's attractive. Because you and I are drawn to the idea of someone stepping out of their high and lofty place and taking the form of a servant. Because that's what Jesus did. A.W. Tozer says it like this. He veiled his deity, but he did not void his deity. So if you're not yet a follower of Christ, there's a reason why you find humility so attractive in people that you know. And it's because there was one who stepped into our world and humbled himself to offer us salvation. And so this morning, I want to invite you to surrender your life to Jesus. I want to invite you to surrender your life to the most humble man who ever lived. And for you, the greatest act of humility would be to fall on your face right now and acknowledge that Jesus is king and cry out to him for the forgiveness of your sins and put your faith in him and what he has done for you on that cross and in his resurrection and begin following him with your life. So I want to show you where, where all of history is headed. I know that right now we live in very tumultuous times and chaotic times. I want you to see part of our story continue to unfold as we read Revelation chapter 7. We're going to look at Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 12. I'm just going to read it, and we're going to pray. But this has some interesting imagery here that we see in the Matthew chapter 21 passage. Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 12. And this is describing a future time. And it says, after this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. God, we're thankful, we're grateful that you know the end of the story. We're thankful and grateful that we can see just glimmers of your faithfulness all throughout the scriptures. We thank you that, um, that you're a God in the midst of all that we're walking through right now, that you're a God to be trusted. You are stable. You're a God that's with us. You're our fortress. And God, I pray that as many of our people are scattered across this city right now, I pray 
that they would know your sovereignty and know your faithfulness in a very real way this morning, Father. And God, I also pray for those that don't yet know you and are not yet following you. I pray, God, that, that through all that we're walking through right now, as they continue grabbing a hold of things that are unsure and uncertain and don't have a foundation, I pray that they would see you as their foundation. They would see you as the only thing that is certain and sure in this world. And they would surrender and submit themselves to you, Father. God, we pray that this church and these people would be a people who glorify your name and point people to you, especially as we walk through these trying days, the next couple of weeks or months. God, we praise you and we thank you that we can still gather even in this way this morning, Father. We pray this in your name. Amen.